Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, and I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bibles um, in page, on page 811. And we'll be reading verses 19 through 27. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though myself, I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you, know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Um, so, uh, in addition to the sharing that we have, uh, uh, that we had during the offering time, we also had scheduled this week a report uh, from some of our people who went, who participated in our uh, China short-term mission team this summer. Uh, so, to kind of kick off our message time, I'm going to invite uh, Chris and Natalie, two of our uh, college students, to come up and just share a little bit about the China mission trip this summer that our church sponsored. Okay, Chris, Natalie. Hello, uh, my name is Chris Joe, and I'm a junior at Bentley University. Uh, hi, my name is Natalie, and I'm a sophomore at Brandeis University. Um, we are just two members of a 12-person team that went on a short-term mission um, to China um, late June to early July. Um, the purpose of this mission was to teach at an English camp um, through a church in China. And out of the 64 students that attended, um, we split them up into five different classes based on their level of English proficiency. Um, the CBCGB team... Uh, consisted of a range of EM, CM, youth, ICF, and other fellowships. Um, You can see us in the picture on the left. And the local workers were extremely helpful. Um, You can see um, in the middle on the picture on the right, um, her name is Sister Hui Liang, um, and she was our contact um, between our church and the local church. And the the entire local team was exceedingly um, generous and helpful towards us, so we really appreciate that. Um, So this is a picture of the church that we uh, went to every day, um, and this is where they have service on Sundays as well. 
Um, the church was located in Longyan, which is in Fujian province. Um, and compared to other areas of China, the government um, doesn't really mind that the churches exist. They see it more as um, a form of a way of keeping social order and uh, crime rates down, etc. Um, so people in Longyan worship pretty freely. Um, and this is one of the three house churches um, in Longyan. Our daily schedule consisted of um, praise and worship, an English lesson, uh, lunch, and a Bible lesson. We also did an afternoon activity. Um, Our English topics had different topics every day, such as family and um, sports. And um, we also taught things such as vocab and grammar. And after English lessons, we would have reading lessons, which um, were um, scripture, um, Bible stories, um, where we were able to have discussions with the students and kind of um, get a better understanding of where they are in their relationship um, with Christ. And um, it was more personal um, compared to the English lessons. And the students were able to ask questions about um, particular Bible stories and Um, each Bible story was a part of um, the gospel story, so the kids were able to learn about the gospel as well. And pictured on the right are two of my students, um, Green and Eileen. Um, We actually have the unique experience of being able to keep in contact with them after the mission trip. Um, So I actually talked with Green last night. Um, And it's interesting to see um, sort of where she has gone since we last um, saw each other. Um, I also spoke to another one of my students named Evan. Um, And Green is in, um, she's 18 years old, or she's turning 18 uh, fairly soon, and she's in her last year of high school, and Eileen is 16 years old, and she's the equivalent of a junior in high school, um, just to get a feel of how old they are. Um, Interacting with my class uh, led to some introspection of myself. Um, I grew up as a church kid, and... my entire class was all Christian. Um, they're, they're all church kids, and they all re- attend church um, somewhat regularly. Um, yet, growing up in the church, I don't feel like I, I really knew God, and maybe this is the same position that um, my students were in as well. When I was their age, I was thinking about girls in school, and, um, and, and I guess I could sort of feel that this was the priority of some of my students as well. Yet... Um, in discussing the readings and asking questions and um, sort of picking their mind um, to see what they think, um, I could tell that they really connected the dots when we went over the reading lesson, and it just made a little bit more sense. Um, so on the left is um, a student named Jenny. She is the same age as me, and she just started um, her first year of university this fall. Um, she was one of uh, two people in my class who weren't Christians. Um, she came um, out of um, interest in learning English. Um, so we have an interesting story about her. Um, one day we were just um, having our normal English lessons when she got a call from her family that her grandmother was in the hospital um, because she had, I think, a heart attack. So um, Jenny left, and um, a couple hours later she called us and asked us to pray for her um, grandmother. And um, we were just kind of amazed that this girl who had not had a relationship with God had just a little bit of faith um, to believe that God answers prayers. And uh, we were also amazed that God could use an unfortunate situation to possibly reveal himself more to um, Jenny.
On the first day of classes, many of the students were very shy and they possibly didn't speak up in class normally, so maybe they had the same mentality going into this English camp. Uh, we tried to really encourage them to um, speak up, ask questions, um, and answer questions if they can. Um, they, they would all stare blankly at me, and, and literally it was the weirdest experience that I've had in, in sort of like a teaching role. Um, they they um, were just really shy, and they wouldn't speak. Um, so, um, but Pastor Dave assured me that um, this was normal behavior and that um, they would soon open up, and this was true. Um, after a few days of lessons, they um, near the end of the first week, we really started to um, talk with the students more and, and get to know them on a per- more personal um, level. Um, one of the more quiet girls in my class named Rachel, um, she's actually quite humorous. Uh, so on the left is a picture of, um, we, were, we went to karaoke with the students and just had lunch and we went mountain climbing. So we spent the weekend with them um, and it was really great uh, to know that these students actually wanted to spend their time with us and um, really wanted to get to know more about our lives in the U.S. and why we came on this trip. Um, so uh, we still keep in contact with them through um, te- um, QQ, Skype, email. So it's really wonderful that um, technology has facilitated um, the ability to um, keep long-term relationships with the students, even though we're back at home. Um, going into the mission, I, I set a high bar for myself. I, I thought that I envisioned that I would be, um, being bold for God, I would stretch my faith in many ways, and that I would be able to share the gospel with many non-believers. But to be honest, I was a little bit disappointed that most of the camp was already Christian, most of the students at the camp. Um, But although this is not necessarily a bad thing, um, I I realized that missions are not only about casting as wide a net as possible, but we should be prepared to work with God prepares for us in advance. Um, so I changed my mindset from sharing the gospel to speaking with these students one-on-one um, and praying that God will work in their lives. Um, through this trip, I realized that um, you don't have to go on an official mission trip um, to, in, in order to minister to people. Um, we were just simply able to be a part of these kids' everyday lives and build relationships with, with them and show them that we love them through um, not only uh, revealing God's love to them, but also simply investing in relationships and having them know that people um, on the other side of the world care about them and want to minister to them. Um, so as an application, I feel like um, through school and work, we can just minister to people around us by um, spending time with them and loving them and um, you don't need to go on a missions trip in order to do that. And on behalf of the Longyan um, short-term mission team, um, our prayer requests are to continue to grow our relationships with these students, um, that God will continue to grow the seeds that have been planted in Longyan, and also that God will continue to work in China. Thank you. Thank you. you. I really appreciate all the sharing this morning because it just helps me recognize how big our world is and what God is doing in the world. We heard from a person who um, is in a place where doing evangelism is difficult and and, and maybe even quite dangerous. 
uh, to Chris and Natalie, who shared about a short-term trip that maybe wasn't as difficult and, and certainly not dangerous at all. Uh, but uh, I'm just very uh, just thankful for uh, the work that we can do outside of uh, CBCGB, outside of Boston, around the world, and, and the work we support. And I'm just very uh, proud of Chris and Natalie. I know the Apostle Paul wouldn't boast about himself, but he would boast about his flock, so I can boast a little bit about Chris and Natalie. Uh, it's just great to have them in our college fellowship and to just see how far they've come since they've joined ICF. Uh, I know when they first came you know, this concept of evangelism was probably a little uh, uncomfortable and, and more distant for them. They're, they're probably like, please don't ask me to go out and share Christ with my friends. But as you heard in their sharing, I mean, they go on this trip and they're like, is, is this all there is? I mean, give me more than nine Christians to talk to. Give me people to witness to. And so it's just great to see um, how much they've progressed since they've come to ICF. Um, and those of you who've been attending church for a long time and you've participated in things like mission trips and retreats. You're probably familiar, you know, with this, this feeling that, you know, we go on these events and we can get so pumped up about God, we can get so pumped up about sharing our faith, about evangelism. But it only takes a few weeks after we get back uh, from these events for the feeling uh, to disappear. Uh, you know, we, we turn to our normal life and get caught up in the daily grind of things. And thoughts of God and, and, and evangelism become more of an afterthought. Uh, some of you may remember, uh, if you were here three years ago, you went on our EM retreat. And at that time, we had a, well, the topic was on evangelism. And we had the speaker from Wheaton College, Dr. Jerry Root, uh, come and share. And I know those of you who went, we heard very good feedback. They really much, very much enjoyed um, you know, the speaker and, and just what he had to share with us. And um, you know, I, I, I know that during our retreat time and in our small groups and even after, uh, after the retreat, you know, for a short period, we would dialogue about outreach and evangelism and how we could uh, greater uh, make that part of our lives. And um, I remember one point that Dr. Root would often share is, was how he would often practice what we would call uh, strategic consumerism. And what that means is just like frequenting, frequenting places like restaurants and coffee shops to get to know uh, the workers there, the regular customers there, and develop relationships with them so that uh, at some point you hope that you can share the gospel. And I remember in one of our small group sessions, uh, there was a person who shared how she regularly frequents Starbucks, the same Starbucks. And, and she goes there so often that all the workers knew who she was, they knew her name, you know, she knew who all of them were. And, um, and so after the retreat, she was a little more motivated to be more intentional about uh, building uh, relationships and getting to know some of these coworkers better. Um, but I tend to think that, you know, maybe, you know, a few months or maybe a year later, maybe the fervency in doing that kind of died down. And, and I think, you know, we understand how the spike in our focus and in our just in intensity just heightens when it comes to retreats and, and, uh, and mission trips, uh, you know, but how is it that we can make this a greater part of our daily lives? How can we be more consistent in this? You know, if I had to put a subtitle to this message, I would call it something like, you know, being steadfast in evangelism. Because we want us, we want to be able to see how, you know, we don't just go on these mission trips or retreats and get all pumped up about God and evangelism and then, you know, just, it's a, like a downhill, uh, 
a slide after, you know, once we come back home. Uh, but we want to see how we can be more consistent and steadfast and make evangelism part of our regular lives. And so this is what our passage is going to help us with this morning. You know, Paul shares with us some of his convictions and practices when it comes to evangelism. And, you know, we look at Paul's life and we're like, man, that guy was just a beast when it came to evangelism. And, and we can never be like Paul. And maybe that's true. But I think, you know, we can just pick up even one or two things that we can apply uh, in our lives as we look at this passage. And the first thing I want us to see from this passage is Paul's overarching perspective, which is to win others, to win others. You can see in, just in the first four verses, Paul uses this term win five times. Verse 19, to win as many as possible. Verse 20, to win the Jews, to win those under the law. Verse 21, as to those, to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to win the weak. So five times he mentions this word win. And then it's sort of a summary statement. At the end of verse 22, he uses the word save. He says that all, that by all means possible, I might save some. And I like this last phrase. I know some of you, you know, post these motive, motivational sayings, you know, in conspicuous places to try to help you. I've seen some of you post things like, do your homework, you know, turn off the TV, turn off the computer, stop playing computer games. I was in the house of a musician and I saw in big letters in his living room, you know, you should be practicing. So if you want to, you know, I'll tell you, if you want to post the motivational saying up on your bathroom mirror or your desk or your refrigerator, wherever you can see it, put up the saying, that I might save some. That I might save some. Paul saw this as his primary directive as he went about life, and it should be ours too. And you know, we need to post these, these sayings in obvious places because it needs to be kept at the forefront of our minds. I know many of you have heard me say this before, that you know, as a church, as individuals, we need to overemphasize evangelism because it's often the first thing that's neglected in our Christian lives. You know, no matter how busy we are, most of us will still make it a priority to come to church on Sundays, to attend worship. You know, maybe a lesser number, but still a high majority will make it a, a point to attend your small group or your fellowship group on a consistent basis. A good number of you will, will set it, make sure you set enough time for prayer and, and personal Bible study with God. But how many of you, as you go through the busyness of life, prioritize evangelism? You know, this was always a priority for Paul. And some of you may argue, well, you know, Paul was an apostle. He was a, a missionary. Of course, it was a priority for him. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a priority for us. But if you flip to the next chapter, you'll, you'll see what he tells you, tells the Corinthians. So just to give you a little background, so in context, um, these few chapters in Corinthians, like chapters 8 through uh, 10 or 11, it talks about this whole, Paul gets into to this whole discourse about um, eating food offered to idols. You know, back in their, their day, the Corinthian Christians were debating whether it would be appropriate for them to eat food offered to idols. And in summary, Paul is telling them that eating food offered to idols is not a sin, but there is an overriding principle that you should follow. And he summarizes it at the end of chapter 10. So if you flip over to chapter 10 and to the first verse of chapter 11, you'll see this. So beginning in verse 31, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink, meaning like if you eat food offered to idols, or whatever you do, 
do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I myself, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So they may be saved. Once again, his overarching principle. And then he tells the Corinthians this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You know, what he's saying is that you can eat food to idols in a way that glorifies God, or that you can eat food offered to idols in a way that glorifies God, and you can do it in a way that doesn't glorify God. And the way that you do it such that you don't glorify God is that you eat this food and it becomes a deterrence or hindrance from someone coming to Christ. He says, if you eat the food and it detracts from this person coming to Christ, don't do it. For as Paul says, you know, my goal is that many will be saved. And so follow my example. You know, he tells the regular Christians in Corinth, you know, this is for you too. This is not just for me. Follow my example that many do things so that many will be saved. And that's why we need to post sayings like this in plain sight so that we rec- remember our perspective, to have, they remember that this is, should be an overriding principle in our lives. This should be our perspective, that I might save some. You know, by keeping this posted and you seeing it every morning, it will get ingrained in your minds, and when it does, it may impact how you interact with your coworkers or your classmates. It will help you, you know, recognize that your words and actions may make a difference in whether this person comes to Christ or not. It will help you, you know, remember what your goal is and just be more mindful. Maybe this, maybe when you're about to explode on, on, on your friend or your classmate or coworker, you'll think twice because you remember, my goal is that some may be saved. And on another note related to this point, one thing as I was studying this, this verse, I found it interesting is what is, is Another thing that I found interesting is Paul's perspective regarding conversion. When he writes things like, that I may win as many as possible, that I might save some. And as I was looking at this passage, it became clear to me that he has this conviction that he will see people come to Christ. And I know some of us have had discussions about this, and you know, theologically speaking, sure, it's true that God is the one who convicts people. Um, God is the one who brings people to him. We just were talking about it in our Sunday school class today about the Holy Spirit convicts and brings people to Christ. You know, one thing that John records in his gospel is Jesus saying in um, chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So yes, God does the convicting. God is the one who converts. But I'm challenged by Paul's expectation that even though he understands it as God who does the convicting and converting, he fully believes that he will see people come to Christ as he is faithful in trying to win others. And I know when some of us have conversations about this, we share things like, you know, I'll just you know, share the gospel with this person. I'll do my best to try to be a witness to him. And, the whole, and it's up to the Holy Spirit whether, you know, the Holy Spirit will change him and, and bring him to Christ. Um, you know, and the, once again, this is a perfectly correct saying, probably. But should there be a greater expectation like Paul that as we are faithful 
and fulfilling our mission, we will see people be saved. You know, instead of saying something like, I'll just keep praying for my friends and trying to witness to them and we'll see what happens, should we be saying, I'll pray for my friends and witness to them and like Paul writes, I will see some saved or some will be saved. You know, it seems from this passage that we may have grounds to believe that. You know, but we need to take on Paul's perspective and get it ingrained in our minds so that it becomes the driving force of all that we do. And I see that Paul's perspective impacted his life in such a way that it caused him to take on two practices, self-denial and self-control. Self-denial we find in the first half of the passage in verses 19 to 22, and self-control we find in the second half of the passage, uh, 24 to 27. So in verses 19 to 23, actually it's 23, we, we see Paul discussing the balance between freedom and the law. One of his points is that since coming to Christ, he is no longer bound by the law. In the middle of verse 20, you can see this in parentheses. He writes, I myself am not under the law. And what he's saying is that now that he's gained freedom in Christ, he's not obligated to live by any ceremonial or dietary or separation laws that were handed down in the Old Testament to earn salvation. You know, he's not bound to keep Jewish ceremonies. He's not bound to eat certain things or not eat certain things. But to show that it's not that he can just do whatever he wants, he adds in verse 21. You can see this also in parentheses. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. And there's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. Paul writes this. Paul says, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. So in chapter 7, um, they were addressing, you know, instead of addressing food offered to idols, they were addressing this topic of circumcision. And Paul says, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But that's an interesting statement because circumcision was a commandment in the Old Testament. So when Paul's saying, so is Paul contradicting himself when he says circumcision is nothing but keeping God's command is what counts? I think what Paul's doing is he's distinguishing what we might call the ceremonial laws versus the moral laws. So he no longer has to be circumcised in order to be saved. But this doesn't mean that he can start you know, stealing from people or killing people. You know, he recognizes his obligation to God, which is now defined by his relationship with Jesus. His obligation is to pattern his life after Jesus, who did not claim freedom and rights for himself, but lived a life of self-sacrifice, which led him to the cross. So that's why in this first whole section he says, Though I have the freedom to do all these things, I will give up these rights and make myself a slave to win as many as possible. I will follow Jewish practices if it helps people, if it helps the Jews come to Christ. I will take part in Gentile rituals, you know, if it helps the Gentiles come to Christ. I will become weak if it helps the weak come to Christ. I mean, once again, you know, there are moral laws that Paul is bound to keep. You know, he never wrote anything like, you know, to the adulterers, I became an adulterer to ruin those who commit adultery. I mean, he never said anything like that. But whatever was permissible, he was willing to deny himself to win an audience. And, and just to show you an example of this, we can see an example 
There, there's tons of examples in the book of Acts of Paul doing this, but I'll just show you one to, to, to give you an example. In Acts 21, there's, there's a story. It tells the story where Paul is returning uh, to Jerusalem after one of his missionary journeys. So he, you know, he comes to Jerusalem and he's really anxious to see the Jewish Christians there, and he even brought an offering for, for the poor Jewish Christians that were collected from the Gentile churches that he just came back from visiting. And when he arrives, he meets with James and some of the elders. And James and some of the elders come to him and talk to him. He's like, oh, Paul, we have kind of a, a problem here. And he says, the problem is, you know, well, he said, on, on one hand, the good news is, there's all these Jews that are coming to Christ. There's thousands of them that are coming to Christ. And this is a great thing. But one thing is, they still feel that it's important to observe Old Testament Jewish law. So they're Christians, but they still want to keep the traditions of the Old Testament. And the problem is, they heard that you're anti-Jewish. They hear that you've been going around to all these Gentile countries, and you tell the Jews there that they don't need to be circumcised, you know, they don't have to keep the traditions and customs of the Old Testament. And so they hear you're against all this and that you're anti-Jewish. And so you're going to go up and, and talk to them, the next day, and they're going to boo you. And they're going to say, and they're going to reject you because of what they've heard from you, about you. And even worse, they might reject Christ because of, of hearing this about you. And so James explains to Paul, he's like, I have an idea. And I think this is a really good one. He says, there's these four guys who are Jewish Christians, but they still, like these other people, want to observe the law. And these these particular guys have taken a Nazarite vow. And if you don't know what that is, part of this vow requires that you never shave, shave your head, you never cut your hair. And you do this for an extended period of time, for however long you took the vow. You can read about this in, in number six. There's all these instructions about how to uh, observe this law. And for however long you take this vow, you never cut your, cut your hair. But at the end, when this period of the vow is over, what you do is you go to the temple and you shave your head and you present your hair kind of as an offering to God. So James tells Paul, there's these four guys who did this. They, they took this Nazarite vow. They haven't cut their hair for this, for this long period. But their time's almost up for them to, to end the vow. So they're going to go to the temple and have their head shaved. And here's what I want you to do, he says. You go with them and you pay for their, their expense to have their head shaved. And what's even more, why don't you have your head shaved so that people will know that you don't disrespect Jewish law? And, you know, Paul kind of responded, so let me get this straight. You know, I'm not a rich guy. I don't have a lot of money. But you want me to pay for these four guys to get their head shaved? And what's even worse, you want me to shave my own head? You know, he could have said, you know, I kind of like my hair. You know, I don't like being bald. You know, I don't have to do this. And he would have been perfectly right, and it would have been perfectly within his right not to do this. But, if, but to make the long story short, you know, in verse 26 of Acts 21, it says, The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Meaning, he took these guys to the temple, he paid for them to get their head shaved, and he himself shaved, their head, shaved his head. Why? In order, once again, back to our passage, in order that the Jews may come to Christ or would not reject Christ because of his actions. 
Like he says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew. You know, Martin Luther once wrote this paradox. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. But a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And so Paul is challenging us here to think about what extent would we go through to win our friends for Christ? Or what extent should we go through to win our friends and co-workers and those outside the circle of Christ to Christ? And why was saving people so important to him? Because he was fully aware of the alternative. You know, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus declares, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And we don't have time to get into all of this, but suffice it to say that Paul was well aware of the fact that those apart from Christ will face separation from God and will face God's wrath. And the thought of these people being eternally separated from God and condemned before him was something that motivated Paul to save people from this. This is why Paul was willing to go to almost any length to win others. And this is why he challenges us to do the same. I'll tell you, one of the thoughts that sometimes haunt me is just, sometimes I have these thoughts of these unbelievers that I'm friends with, you know, passing on from this life and standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And if I was present, you know, them standing before the judgment seat of Christ and them asking, you know, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say anything? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, I was afraid of ruining my relationship with you. Or I was afraid that you would reject me and you wouldn't accept me anymore. I mean, is this what I want to be saying to them? I mean, isn't their eternal salvation worth more to us than our relationship? with them? Yeah, sure, they have the prerogative to choose what they want to do with this information. But isn't it our obligation to say or do something? How can they choose if you never told them? And maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting us that we could be doing more than we are currently doing. But you know, as we try to become all things to all people, we need to do this with with our clear purpose in mind. And that's why you know, in your outline, I kind of put these two measurements to ask yourselves as you go to try to become all things to all people. You know, ask yourself as you try to reach out, or as you try to reach out to, to those whom you are trying to be a witness to. Are they becoming more spiritually minded, or are you becoming more worldly minded? You know, what effect? Who 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 is? this attempt to become all things to all people having more of an effect on. You know, you know, for instance, like, you know, I don't watch, you know, reality TV shows. I, I think I said this before. I really can't stand them. I don't even like, like the singing shows. I don't watch things like, you know, The Voice or uh, what American Idol or X Factor or things like that. Um, but maybe I would start watching them if I was trying to witness to one of my friends who was really into these shows so that I could relate to him or her better. Um, and if I started watching these shows and I started getting caught up with it and, you know, there's all this, like, gossip going on with all these judges now, like, you know, oh, you know, Brittany said this about Christina and Christina said this about Brittany and, you know, Mariah's coming in and saying this about both of them and now, you know, Nikki's getting into the game and saying all this stuff. You know, and if I started, like, getting into all this and, and reading the tabloids, you know, I would probably have to take a step back and, like, 
who is this having more of an impact on? Am I really helping my friend come to Christ? Or am I just getting caught up with, with this garbage that you know, this, the tabloids are feeding us? You know, I would probably need to refocus and, and readjust. And so, you know, as you do this, ask yourself, are you becoming more worldly or are they becoming more spiritual-minded? And the second thing you can ask yourself is, as you become all things to all people, is your passion for winning your friends or your coworkers or your family growing or is it shrinking? If you do these things, it should be growing. And if you find that your passion is, is shrinking, maybe the world's having more of an effect on you than you and the world. So keep these things in mind and, and use this as a check as you try to become all things to all people. Quickly, Paul's second practice is self-control. Um, it's, and it's easy to pick up on Paul's athletic references as he relates to the goal of winning people for Christ. And in the city of Corinth, there, were, there was this uh, huge athletic event called the Isthmian Games. It was held like every two or three years, and it was second only to the Olympics. And those who won the events, you know, received this wreath that was made of like a branch or a stalk. And, and so Paul's point is easily ascertained. He's like, you know, these athletes train so hard to win this pitiful little wreath that's just going to die and you're just going to have to throw it away. How much more should we train to receive an eternal reward? And to what lengths can we ask ourselves, should we go to achieve what Paul says should be our priority? You know, when I think about this concept of training, one thing I think we often miss is the actual act of doing something is part of the training. You know, when I started learning how to play tennis, you know, I would participate in these practices, do these drills. You know, I could read, read all this information about how to do strokes a certain way. But actually, I picked it up really late, almost too late, that I actually needed to play matches to become better. You know, when I wanted to work on my serve, I could read articles about how, to, how I'm supposed to serve. I could watch videos of Andy Raddick to see how he served. You know, I could have an instructor tell me, oh, this is how you stand, this is how you do the ball toss. But actually, what helped me improve the most is when I started playing matches and serving in matches. You know, this was a necessary part of the training. And some of you hear this and you're probably like, well, duh, Dave, that's pretty obvious. Of course, you know, doing this is part of the training. But I think... When it comes to evangelism, we often miss this point. You know, I hear people say, you know, well, you know, I need more instruction on how to do it. You know, I need more training. I don't feel comfortable yet until I, until I get more direction. But we forget that we actually have to go out and do it to improve. This is part of the training. You know, sure, we may go out and stumble with our words. You know, sure, we may find ourselves in awkward situations. But even though we, fail like, we may feel like failures and that we totally messed up, God can still honor our efforts and use it to bring people closer to Christ. I personally have, have experienced this, and I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard from people who come to me and said, you know, I was talking to my friend, and I felt so unprepared and uncomfortable, and, and, and I was just like, I, would, I didn't even know what I was saying. It was just like words were coming out of my mouth. And I was tongue-tied, I was so nervous. But then they say, you know, somehow God used it to make a difference in that person's life. And this person, you know, even if they didn't accept Christ, started asking more questions, they became more interested in Christ. You know, 
And so that's what we need to recognize, is we have to do it. And that is part of the training. So be willing to take the plunge and train yourself and develop self-control because we understand that we have a greater purpose, which is to win others. I don't, I don't have, we're out of time, so I don't have time to get into the last section, but let me wrap it up here. You know, in this passage, what Paul writes about is really relational evangelism. You know, coming alongside unbelievers and getting to know them and valuing them as a person created in God's image, not just potential objects of conversion. And I think this is the model we are most comfortable with. I hear people, you know, I don't really feel comfortable doing cold evangelism, but I want to do, but I can do relational evangelism. But oftentimes we just use this as an excuse and we're just way too passive when it comes to evangelism with our friends. So Paul beseeches us, recognize what your perspective and your priority should be. You know, that I might save others. This should be our goal. This should be our priority. Practice self-denial. Practice self-control. Do it all that you might save some. Save them from eternal separation from God and separation from his wrath. And in doing so, we will be like Paul and be able to say that we saw that we, that we, we, saw that we were able to win others for Christ and we were able to save some. Let's pray. Father, I thank you just for the witnesses of these people that have shared this morning in our service, just for their boldness, for their courage, for their passion in wanting to see Christ um, become part of an individual's life because they know that without Christ, people will live eternally uh, separated from God, they will live, uh, they will experience God's condemnation. So we thank you, Father, for these servants that you have worked in to want to bring the gospel to people. And Father, may we be encouraged through their example and through the words of 1 Corinthians this morning to want to not just make evangelism a, an afterthought in our lives, more of just something we do if we find the time, but make it a priority like Paul's. And to recognize that, you know, we don't just want to have these emotional highs at retreats and mission trips and come back and, you know, and just forget about it. But we want to be steadfast in evangelism. Father, make it our aim that we might save some for your glory and honor. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.